Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Reverend Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt. Jennifer holds the Franklin S. Durness Chair in Biblical and Theological Studies at Wheaton College. She is a fellow in the Royal Historical Society and an ordained minister in the PCUSA. Dr. McNutt received her PhD in History from the University of St. Andrews and MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary. Her research specializes in the history of the church and Christian theology from the Reformation through the Enlightenment, with particular expertise in John Calvin and his clerical legacy, the Reformed tradition, the relationship between Christianity and science, and the history of the Bible and its interpretation. Hi, Jennifer. It's so great to have you with us on the Alabaster Jar. Thank you. I'm thrilled to talk with you all. Thank you. Oh, you are quite welcome. You're you're the uh, Calvin expert in my life, <laughs> and I you you know all things Calvin. And we, we'll talk about other things because you know Good. a lot of other things. <laughs> but um, I want our uh, I want our uh, listeners to know that um, your work on Calvin and the French Bible. Um, is is just fantastic. Your uh, published dissertation, Calvin Meets Voltaire, won the Brewer Prize for the best book of a first-time author from the American Society of Church History. So, I mean, you you really know this this period, and we're going to definitely dig into that. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> yeah, sure. But uh, I wanted to start actually in a different spot. Um because you are Reverend Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt. You are also a pastor and you grew up in a pastor's home. So talk a little bit, and I've met your parents who are wonderful thank people. You. So talk a little bit about what that was like being in a pastor's home. Yeah, thank you. It it was so formative um, just from a young age, I think, just especially I usually talk about the dinner table conversation you know, our topics were, I think, very different than, you know, the typical household wasn't as much about sports. It was much more about, yeah, just Bible theology, Calvin, a a lot too about the life of the church, the polity of the church, problem solving, you know, ministry, real life ministry stuff. And I, I really appreciated how, I guess, my parents engaged us in that process. You know, they used to ask, do you have a good story? I'm looking for a sermon illustration. <laughs> yeah, I heard that question a lot coming up a lot. And I used to have a notebook where I kept stories and ideas that would illustrate scripture as like a junior high and high schooler. Um, so I was always, I guess, thinking in those kinds of ways. And um, I, I never stopped, uh, frankly. So uh, so I think that's part of it. And then I was I was trying to think of a fun story to tell you uh, that would kind of highlight this. When my parents retired from uh, years of ministry uh, in the Presbyterian Church, um, I received much of their biblical, you know, library, their biblical theological library. And so I was going through books, seeing, you know, there are duplicate books or some books that are dated, that sort of thing. And I come across the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, Volume 3. And I'm like, 
well, I don't have volume one and two, so maybe, you know, I'll give it to a friend or something. And I open up the front page and there's a beautiful romantic dedication of this book to my mother um, as a gift and this like beautiful message. And I was like, okay, well, I, ha- I guess I have to keep volume three of this dictionary. So it's just a great example of, yeah, anyway. <laughs> they did ministry together. Both your parents are ordained and they did ministry together. Yeah. And what a, what a gift. And I think you and your husband, uh, kind of follow in that in that lead you do uh ministry together yeah I, growing up I watched my mom preach uh one Sunday and my dad preached the next and I just didn't know that it could be you know different than that um so it wasn't until later you know when I came across other traditions and other groups who you know didn't support women in ministry that I realized this is this is really different <laughs> Um, and yes, of course, uh, David and I met in seminary, just like my parents met. And, um, you know, we have sort of unexpectedly, I guess, continued on that tradition. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's so neat. Well, and, you know, you you uh, have your uh, your own family now and there's a new book out called Power Women that is uh, by InterVarsity Press. Uh, it's edited by Nancy Wang Yuan and Deshana Collier Gobill. And you have a chapter in that where you talk about motherhood and the academy. And, and of course, you're also a pastor in all of this. And it's a great chapter, highly recommend it. There's one part of it I'd love to have you um, talk even more about, which is you focus on the why of being a mom and a professor and a pastor. So could you talk a little bit more about why why <laughs> you chose to focus on the why <laughs> and not the how to do it all, but rather why to do it all? Yeah, thank yeah. you. That, that book is really excellent. I'm excited about the contributions there and the different perspectives. It was a real privilege to get to think and write about this part of our lives, right? That we all, as as professional women, women in theology, women in uh, biblical studies, navigate, you know, um, and to get to to think through how do I do it and why do I do it was was really it was challenging, frankly, but it was it was really wonderful. Um, I think I quickly, as I was reflecting on my story and kind of like, what do I choose to share and, you know, what would be the most helpful to share? I quickly realized that at every part of my journey, the how I did something really depended upon the circumstances, you know, whether I was single uh, or just newly married or just one child. And now in this case, three children, you know, and so the the challenges have have shifted and changed and i and i think that it was it's hard to write a chapter that can explain the how when the circumstances are can really change for people and um so my thought was that i i really want to be driven though especially by the why why am i motivated to juggle all these things these these three callings um, to my family, to the church, and to my academic work. Um, 
why am I doing this? Because it, it's very easy to, I think, just get worn down, to get overloaded, <laughs> you know, to get kind of exhausted by it. And there, there may be some good solutions, and there are, I think, good solutions for how to address those those issues at different points. But I want to always be sort of focused on the most important thing, which is, you know, that God has is equipped me and called me to serve. And so I started really navigating that part of it. And, and especially in light of Paul's metaphor of running a race, uh, that really resonated with me. I think also because, you know, I used to be a, I used to run track too. So it was like, oh, I, I can really, you know, think this through. And, um, you know, it was like, what does that mean? Uh, sort of sorting out is Paul saying like we have to run ourselves ragged you know because we all feel I think we do feel like we are running a race and it's it can be so exhausting but I found such hope in that that reading especially in first Corinthians 9 uh, verse 26 I think 26 is such a good verse because it's saying that we don't run aimlessly. You know, we're not just doing things to fill our time, to be busy, but we are directing our energy with purpose. And in this case, to run for the Lord. And that is, that's what I want my my life to be. I want to always be clear about that. Um, and in And I think there's freedom then to maybe say, no, in certain seasons, this is too hard. This is too much. Um, the Lord is really calling me here uh, right now um, to, to direct myself. And so that's what I've been discovering in my own journey. And I did actually publish it recently in a blog for the Christian Scholars Review. And I talk about it in terms of stewardship. So how do we steward our time that is using our gifts to the glory of the Lord, um, and that also, you know, appreciates this is a, uh, it's not a sprint, it's a, uh, you know, it's a marathon. <laughs> no, yeah, that's good, that's good, and and uh, keeping in that theme, there's a part in this chapter where you talk about receiving your call to pastoral ministry when you were a child at church camp. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, there's this open invitation, you're around a fireside, I can totally picture it, you know, at camp, and you heard the Lord calling you to pastoral ministry, be a pastor, said a still small voice. And then a little bit later, uh, it, uh, on the page, you said, um, I've resonated with John Calvin's description of that secret call to ministry. And, uh, and that's been reflective of your own experience. As you think about that, how, how has that still small voice to be a pastor sustained you? I mean, because this happened when you were a kid. Yeah. You know, how, how has that sustained you um, through, through the years of study and work and all of that? Yeah, thank you so much. Um it was just such a powerful experience as a child. I think it was such a gift to be able to go home and to say to my parents, this is what happened to me. Um, you know, I was just 10 years old and for them to be able to accept that and to, to sort of say like to receive that and to, 
encourage me was was a huge part of it. It's validating, I think, too, the the spiritual experience that I had. Um, and, and again, it was just, yeah, it was just such a pivotal moment. I continue to reflect on that pretty regularly um, to inspire me that, you know, I know that the Lord has called me into to do this work. And um, even if I couldn't, I certainly couldn't have imagined at 10 years old what exactly this was going to look like. Um, but there was there was kind of an openness at that point for me to say I need to pursue, um, you know, education in the area of of theology and scripture and church history, um, and you know, and then of course pastoral training and pastoral care. I need to pursue this. God is equipping me. He has something in store for me. I don't know what it is, but I'm willing. You know, and I think that was the a big part of what happened to me at 10 was saying, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm willing for you to, to guide me wherever this is supposed to go. And, you know, I don't, I, I certainly didn't anticipate being a professor. Um, So it's just amazing (laughs) to think about where, you know, where that ended up, but it's been very encouraging to me. And especially when I've been, you know, at different points, like in college or sometimes in more conservative contexts where there are um, significant questions about women in ministry, where it's easy to be discouraged, um, to feel that um, hurt, kind of, and um, just to to come back to that that moment, and to come and then in reading scripture, in coming back to my church community, and sort of into my husband, you know, to, into to receiving that that support and confirmation is is ongoing and, and appreciated. So. No, I, I, I think that's often why God gives us these moments, right? Where he calls or we hear the spirit because the journey has a lot of ups and downs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to uh, shift gears just a little bit and talk about some of your most recent work. You wrote on Marguerite queen of Navarre, you're going to have to, you're, you're the, Navarre, uh, yeah. no, it's you're the person who can pronounce. Oh, it was pretty good. Okay. My American accent here, <laughs> the sister of the queen of France, you know, and when I thought man, there are just so many amazing women in history, we don't, yeah. we just don't know anything about it. Here she is the sister of the queen of France. She protected the Protestants. Tell us about her, this Marguerite. Yeah, I, I, so happy to. And I'll just say that in my classes as well and in my scholarship, I'm really trying to draw out the story of women in church history and, you know, show and highlight their contributions and their significance and even recategorize them. Because one thing that I was I've been trying to do with Marguerite is to show that she is a theologian. I know we're going to talk about that, but to use that category is is significant in in redirecting um, the way that scholarship has sometimes set her aside or simply not incorporated her, you know, in in the narrative. So, yeah, so she was the sister of the King of France. So um, Francis I, who was the king when the Reformation was starting in France, and that uh, Francis uh, Marguerite's brother, um, he was 
Calvin's king. Okay, so uh, and in fact, just to orient it, um, when Calvin writes the Institutes, the dedication that he writes is to King Francis the first who is Marguerite's brother. So anyway, so they're brother and sister, and they're really very close. Um, Marguerite has a lot of authority. She's got, she is highly educated. Um, you know, she has a lot of access to power and people. And because of that, and because of her strong relationship with her brother, he actually gives her legal standing that would only be accessible to a male nobleman. Um, so he really elevates her in a significant way. And because of that, she is able to nurture, to serve as a patron, and then even to contribute to the theological conversations of the time around re reform theology, Reformation theology. So in terms of terminology, um, evangelical would be an appropriate word for that time. Evangelical theology just means like Protestant theology. Um, and then we would describe it as reformed now, but in its time, it, you know, it's evangelical. So she is like, she has kind of all these different roles and there is a group of reform minded Catholic priests and a bishop who is at the city of Mo, and she's a patron of that group. Um, she even, you know, hires them for positions. She protects them from prison. She helps to facilitate the publication of biblical translation and theological um, translation. And then she contributes herself. Um, and her story has been modeled sometimes because, um, you know, she's kind of a precursor in some way to the, the actual Protestant Reformation, but her whole legacy, like her daughter and then her granddaughter and grandson become very important for the Protestant Reformation in France. So, yeah, so that's just a little bit. I can do, I can tell you more if you want, but. <laughs> yeah, no, well, please do. I mean, let's move into her theology because yeah. you mentioned she is a theologian. She wrote a work called The Mirror. Um, you know, what is what is she reflecting on? Um, what is her theology? How does she describe her theology? Yeah, so it's the it's called The Mirror of the Sinful Soul is the text that she publishes. It comes out in 1531. So, you know, this is right when Calvin is just going, just again, to orient you, Calvin is, hasn't really become part of the Protestant movement at this point. So she's even before Calvin. And what's interesting about the piece, so it's, it is an, an uh, anonymous uh, piece, but everybody knows that she's written it and then it's published in Paris. This is, I know, always funny about the early modern period. In 1533, it's published in Paris and then um, the Sorbonne rejects it. Um, and her book is put on the index of prohibited books. And be because she's the sister of the king and King Francis loves his sister he's like uh no <laughs> you will not put my sister's book on the index of prohibited books but i i feel like it does highlight that the theology that she's expressing here is seen as dangerous right it's seen as you know on the edge and basically what it is is um you know she's she's writing theological poetry and this is kind of something I say in my classes, which is that when we 
um, define the medium for theology so rigidly with kind of a modern style, for example, we're really cutting out a lot of people who contributed to theological conversation, you know? And um, so theological poetry was a way that women especially could contribute to to this conversation. There were plenty of uh, individuals we would consider male theologians, right? Theologians. Um, who also wrote theological poetry. Like this was a, an accepted medium. So that's what she's doing. And the, you know, the theological faculty at the Sorbonne recognize that it's important and that it's dangerous. So um, theologically, she is just highlighting, I think, that early reformed Lutheran perspective that is, let's bring everything back to Christ. It's very Christocentric, focused on our own sinfulness. And um, she really, she draws out the fact that our baptism hasn't, you know, resolved it, you know, that, that this sinfulness that we have, we still carry. Um, and she is actually critical in the, in the text that a bad doctrine, bad doctrine that's been taught to her, that has taught her that she can merit her own restoration, basically. And so she uses the phrase Christ alone. And she talks about the unmerited grace that we receive. And actually, I am reading this piece as an affirmation of union with Christ in faith. And, you know, so when you read it through those lenses, you see like, oh, this is pretty robust, actually, in terms of the theological content. But but the style you know, it's beautiful, right? It's poetic. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And so w- would you say that she um, would have uh, had some some influence then uh, in her, among her peers uh, and then in the next generation? Because you mentioned her daughter and how important her daughter was. Talk a little bit about oh, that. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um Oh, and I want to say, too, that the poetic text is also filled with scripture, with references to scripture and allusions to scripture. So that's another way, I think, that that she's contributing to this um, kind of a Protestant, the development of Protestant theology. Ah. And, and may I ask real quick, it just suddenly occurred to me, is that scripture in French or in Latin? Or what is she writing? What language is she writing in? Oh, yeah, it's in French this text is in French. And so that it all, yes, that's a good question because that also speaks to the fact that you're seeing vernacular language doing things that it wasn't doing before the Reformation, um, you know, starting to contribute to theological conversation. So, yeah, so that's another reason why women have been left out is sometimes the inability to write in Latin. Um, yeah, so that's something to consider. Okay, so getting back to the what you the, the question you asked, um, which was such a good question, I think, you know, what's interesting to me is the mentoring that she's providing or the patronage is to both men and women. And it's to her family, um, you know, it's it's to her children, um, and then that's passed down to the grandchildren, but it's also to other female noble women and you know, so there's kind of a whole network that she is generating, supporting, um, 
enabling. And in some ways, it's a refugee network as well, where she um, provides shelter for um, for those that are reform minded or, you know, initially Lutheran. Right. And then uh, Protestant. Um, and so she prov- she's kind of providing that space and that protection in that mentoring. And then we see it with her correspondence. She's writing to Calvin. He's writing back to her. Um, other uh, significant lim- female reformers of the time are writing to Marguerite. Uh, Marie Dentier is one good example. She's in Geneva uh, during Calvin's time. And she writes to Marguerite um, a- really about women in the Bible and kind of women's callings to the church and to reform. And so, yeah, she's really facilitating, I think, these conversations that are important that the church needed to have at that time. And it it ends up generating um, good questions, good responses, and kind of movement, I think, in thinking through how do women contribute to ministry. So... Yeah, and I was thinking you you talk about her daughter also being important. Does Calvin call her daughter our Deborah? Yes, yes, he does. Right. That is so that is so cool. And let me just say a plug here because your mom is so wonderful. As I was looking at this, I thought, oh, kind of like <laughs> um, Jennifer's mom and Jennifer. You oh. know, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But anyway, <laughs> you're very kind. <laughs> just a little. Uh, shout out to you. Yes, Reverend Dr. Um, Pamela but Powell. Yeah, so her daughter, <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, but, you know, to call someone our Deborah, um, her, that, that Calvin does, uh, Marguerite's daughter, that's that's pretty amazing. It is, it is really amazing, I think. And it's, it's also a label that was used for Queen Elizabeth um, when she was coming to the throne. It, it matters because in those contexts, they are talking about at that time uh, whether women can inherit the throne and whether they're permitted to rule. Um, the, John Knox's famous uh, trumpet blast against the monstrous regiment of women is on the mind of, <laughs> you know, many. And so um, so it is it is relevant The Marguerite of Navarre, her um, and then. Uh, Jean d'Albray, who becomes the Queen of Navarre, um, so her daughter, they are also ruling a territory that's not governed by Salic law. Salic law is French law that prevents women from inheriting the throne. Um, so that the kind of the highest role that a woman could have is simply to have princes of the blood. And that's what, um, you know, Jean d'Albray, Marguerite's uh, daughter, um, she has the prince of the blood. Her son becomes the king of France. And um, so their family is very important for that reason. But meanwhile, Marguerite and Jeanne are able to introduce reform in their own territory. So the this um, principality of Bern um, in, the, in that region in Navarre, um, Jeanne d'Albray is able to introduce the Reformation actually you know, in a way that France never even does. So, and that includes things like vernacular Bible translation, you know, um, it, you know, religious toleration, or in this case, even making reformed, uh, the reformed church, the primary church of that territory. So, you know, they're very committed, very dedicated, and even 
to the point of in, in John's case, she has a, a bad marriage, a difficult marriage it, that her son is taken from her. Um, she is separated from him for about five years and which is just excruciating. Um, and she has to fight to get him back. So, you know, so there's just all these women are incredibly courageous um, and incredibly committed to their faith. It's, it's very inspiring. Oh, it sounds like it. You know, they face, uh, well, you and I don't face problems of being a queen. Oh, well, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but those other kind, but, but struggles are struggles. And it's wonderful to be inspired by women in history who have gone before and, and kind of, sh- um, uh, inspired us that it can be done um, and and that it can be done in our time, you know, our time as well. Well, um, as we come to kind of the bottom of our half hour, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about Calvin uh, and his city of Geneva, how that fits in with the history of the the Dake, as you've uh, hinted at already. But what about that is really important for us, especially as we think about uh, women and women in the church. What should we know about Calvin and his Geneva? Yeah, thank you so much. I will try not to say too much. (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, to to orient us uh, better with thinking through Geneva and its, its place and role, and then for women in the church, is to think about it as a city of refuge. Um, it is a city for, you know, people who are on the run <laughs> for their faith. Um, you know, they, it's a very, it's actually a pretty small city, but they were quickly able to double their po- uh, population through migration, migrants and refugees coming within the city. So it is, um, cosmopolitan, I guess, in that way, there are all these different languages and cultures and um, groups of of Protestant Christians coming through. Um, And that's, I think, the best place to start because they are all facing different complexities of life and faith and navigating those. And when we think about women at that time, um, I think it's always important to recognize that um, the decisions that they would make to, for example, accept the Protestant faith could come at tremendous cost and in a way that is much more constraining and difficult than a man uh, in the same legal system, right? So, um, so I think it's important to humanize these women at the time Um and to also appreciate the complexity for some of them, you know, having to leave a convent is like, you know, issuing them a notice of destitution, um, you know, because the society is not really equipped structurally to accept them in um, unless they're married. And so marriage becomes kind of the only option you know, if they want to, to thrive and flourish, um, the closing of the con, we just have to appreciate that the closing of, of the convents has an impact on women. Um, and yet some women were very eager to get out of the convents, were really driven by theological convictions. We have those letters where they talk about hearing about justification by faith alone and being driven 
in theological ways to, to change their situation. Um, we know stories of martyrdom where, you know, they're basically their husbands abandon them and their children are taken from them and they are, you know, put on trial. And Askew is a great example of the English Reformation of just all the things that she had to sacrifice um, in order to, you know, hold this faith um, faithfully. <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, that's that's one part of it. I think that that we need to understand. And and what I love about Calvin's Geneva is the way that it tried to be nimble to address the complexities of of these different women's situations. So, for example, appreciating that a woman might you know was it has been abandoned by her husband, um, you know, Geneva would facilitate ways for her to remarry. And that was a gracious thing in that time um, that in some ways defied some of the practices of the era. You know, um, she needs to be able to remarry. So, yeah, those are some things that I, I really appreciate about it. And then I think there are some really wonderful theological contributions that were critical um, for us to get to this point where, for example, I'm speaking to you as an ordained woman um, you know, I think, you know, the Reformation wasn't perfect, but there were some really important elements that have enabled women to thrive in ministry today. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. Oh, man, I, I have just learned so much, as I always do when we're uh, chatting together. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that you open up this uh, time period for uh, for us just to be able to celebrate how God has worked in and through women down through the centuries and and has, you know, given women theological insight and a tremendous courage and um, and also at times political power yeah. to uh, to facilitate uh, his will. So thank you again so much for joining us here on the Alabaster conversation. Drive. Thank you so much for this invitation. It was a delight. Thanks for joining us this week on The Alabaster Jar. If you would like to hear more conversations like this one, please subscribe and share. On Tuesday, June 7, we are kicking off an eight-week series highlighting women of the Old and New Testaments. Episodes will feature conversations with Dr. Lynn Coick, Dr. Carmen Imes, and Serene Musselman. We will be exploring the stories of these women, some more well-known than others, addressing common myths and discovering how our lives are impacted today by their examples of faith and courage.